Hello, wrestling fans, and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, an old-school wrestling podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 60, where my special guest will be author and historian Mike Cavaccini, and if you are a fan of TNA Wrestling, Impact Wrestling, this will be the episode for you, because we're going to talk a lot about that. I will get to that in just a moment. A few other things I want to talk about. First and foremost, top of mind, I just want to mention, as we do here from time to time on Shut Up and Wrestle, and to acknowledge as well, the passing of Jeff Gaylord, who many folks may remember as a talent in the USWA in Memphis in the early 90s, also worked in the last kind of years of Bill Watts' UWF, and many other places. And Jeff also had a chance to work a bunch of WWF shows in the early 90s during the time that the USWA was having a talent exchange program with the WWF. And you may actually remember him, whether you knew it or not, as one of Shawn Michaels' masked knights at the 1993 Survivor Series. He was, I believe, the Black Knight. I think the other two knights were Greg the Hammer Valentine and Barry Horowitz. Jeff Gaylord passed away a week ago at the age of 64, and our condolences and thoughts go out to the family and friends of Jeff Gaylord. Now, I'd also like to mention a few things happening in the world of books as it pertains to myself. A few things I wanted to share with you, one of which has to do with my last book, Blood and Fire, and one has to do with my upcoming book, Irresistible Force. So Blood and Fire, as we've talked about here, won the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Award for Best Wrestling Book of 2022. And I recently had the pleasure to be a guest on Talk is Jericho, the podcast of Chris Jericho, who uh, is a rising up-and-coming young star that some of you may be acquainted with. Anyway, we were uh, we I was a guest on the show, and we had a chance to talk about The Sheik and Blood and Fire, and also... Of course, Chris had to immediately bring up the incident in which I jobbed him out to Ricky the Dragon Steamboat in Fantasy Warfare in Raw Magazine in 2003. So we had a chance to sort out that problem. There's no longer any heat between the uh, Ocho and myself. But I encourage you to check out my appearance on Talk is Jericho. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Talk is Jericho website as well. It's pretty easy to find. Check it out. Let me know what you think. I hope you enjoy it. I I hope that I acquitted myself well. I also want to mention the upcoming book, Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon, which is the project that is currently in motion and the wheels are turning. I have begun the research process, going deep into the archives, newspapers, Ancestry.com, learning details about Gorilla's early life. But most importantly, I've also been 
chatting up people that knew him, people that were around him, people that worked with him, for him, and otherwise had a chance to talk to, so far, people like uh, Ross Hart, because Gorilla worked for his dad in Stampede, Kevin Sullivan, Ken Patera, Jimmy Corderas, just to name a few, and I have many, many other people on my list trying to put together all the pieces to tell the best story that I can of the life of Gorilla Monsoon. And so I'll continue to keep you updated as the weeks go by as to how that book project is going. But for now, let's go to this week's interview. So Michael Cappuccini is a person who I became aware of because he interviewed me for his book. Michael is working on a book on the history of TNA wrestling, Impact Wrestling, particularly the first 20 years. And at that time, he kind of wanted my perspective as somebody working inside WWE at the time that TNA wrestling began. So this was a fascinating conversation. If you want to learn more about the history of TNA and the formation of it, and even just the landscape of professional wrestling in the early 21st century, then this is going to be a very interesting discussion for you, and I hope that you enjoy it. And I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so this week on Shut Up and Wrestle, it is my pleasure to welcome a fellow author, actually a fellow historian and author, um, a fellow admirer of Barry Manilow. I don't know if we'll get to that, but uh, someone who is a writer, who is a historian, who covers the worlds of entertainment, music, and professional wrestling. He's a certified DDP yoga instructor, which I find fascinating. And as it pertains to our interests, he is the author of the upcoming book on the history of TNA Impact Wrestling. So we'll be talking a lot about that. His name is Michael Cavaccini. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brian. I appreciate being here. It is my pleasure. We've been talking for a while now. Of course, I remember that I first got to know you because you reached out to me when you were kind of in the interview phase for the book, right? Yeah, yeah. I, so yeah, for this book, I not only interviewed uh, talents, but I also interviewed people who work behind the scenes in the office and also those in the industry who I respect, who I consider peers, such as yourself um, uh, and uh, you know, uh, folks from Pro Wrestling Illustrated and elsewhere who I thought would just lend a unique perspective um, to this um, history of TNA. I know in the case of myself, one of the, what we talked about partly was, you know, for the, for people that follow Impact Wrestling and previously when it was total nonstop action, of course, you know that they go back to 2002. And that was right when I was working for WWE. So they were sort of like, our closest competition at the time, at least in the pro wrestling industry itself, especially in those early years when nobody knew where it, where it could go. It sort of felt like they were like the spiritual successor successor to WCW at the time, um, which in some ways it's kind of weird today. It almost looks like AEW is that. But back then it was Impact and TNA. And so we were very um, we were watching them very closely, obviously. Yeah, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I got into them probably around the uh, the Spike TV era, and um, so I wasn't really aware of them back when they first formed. But the the history with them is really interesting because 
Uh, my book is also going to kind of touch on uh, World Wrestling All-Stars, which um, was this promotion. I actually interviewed Andrew McManus, who ran World Wrestling All-Stars, and that essentially kind of morphed into TNA because it was the time in between WCW and TNA. It had the, these like uh, pay-per-views and international tours with like major talent, uh, including Jeff Jarrett and Sting, and I think Bret Hart was part of it and others. And um it was just this interesting short-lived promotion and uh yeah interviewing andrew mcmanus who was the promoter was interesting because he he's in australia so when we were booking that interview i'm like wait a minute what day am i interviewing you because it was like a day ahead or a day behind for him compared to my time zone here in philadelphia that was the hardest thing to schedule but we figured it out we got on the line and actually when i talked to him i learned that he also promoted kiss concerts in australia so i quickly got excited about that because i'm a big kiss fan so you never know you know Worlds colliding as you're putting together a book like this. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned World Wrestling All-Stars because sometimes I feel like it it feels so forgotten. It's like this weird blip in – it's sort of in a way like what, what World Wrestling All-Stars is to TNA is like what All In was to AEW in a weird kind of way. It was like the precursor – Jarrett was involved. They were testing the waters as to what they could do. I mean, obviously, they were totally different backers, but there was some of the same talent, right? Yeah, yeah. And really, that's when Jarrett realized that he could be a promoter. He was, you know, behind the scenes, observing, seeing what happened. Obviously, he grew up with his dad and everything. But I think him and Jeremy Borash were, had a big hand in World Wrestling All-Stars because McManus isn't a wrestling guy. So he did rely on Borash and Jared to provide a lot of that direction and recommendations. And I guess they figured, hell, you know, that went pretty well. Let's, you know, do our own thing. And then, yeah, TNA, uh, you know, they gave birth to TNA in uh, 2002. So it's it's really interesting to see how that, that, that evolved over time. My big memory, because we were watching those um, World Wrestling All-Stars pay-per-views in the office. You know, this is back in the days of VHS tapes still. We would get them from TV. Like, TV would would dub everything. I don't know how they got it. They got everything. Every episode of TNA back in the early days of the weekly pay-per-views, we would get them all, and we'd watch them. And the one thing that stuck with me, I don't know why it always did, was the fact that they had Nathan Jones in World Wrestling All-Stars because he was such an interesting – first of all, I think he's Australian, right? So that would make sense that he would have been used there. But, like, he was such an interesting case to me. People may not remember him, but he had such a – first of all, Vince McMahon loved him. He was, like, pegged – I don't think he was that great. I mean, I hope he's not listening, but <laughs> – he had, a, he had a great look, you know. He was very intimidating looking, and Vince Vince apparently had him pegged for big things. And at one point, he just, as they say, he took his ball and went home. That was the story. He was on tour, on the road. He just said, this isn't for me. I don't like this. Uh, this is, you know, I changed my mind, and he just went home. And so I'm guessing that's why he turned up on All-Stars, because it was local for him, I'm assuming. Yeah, and I do remember Andrew McManus did tell me a story or two about him, Nathan Jones. So I'd have to go back and see what exactly he'd said, but I remember him bringing him up. So, um, yeah, it was really interesting. And through this whole, I think one thing I should point out to people is I don't claim to be an expert um, or like the foremost expert on all things TNA or Impact. 
it's really a learning process. So as I'm working on it, I'm learning, um, which I find actually more exciting. It's almost like an author of a fiction. If you know exactly everything that's going to happen as you're writing it, it can be kind of boring, right? But if you're, at, if as you're writing a piece of nonfiction, you're learning along the way, like you probably did with the Sheik's book, um, that can be exciting for you because then one thing leads to another and you're like, oh, I'm curious about this now. So literally during interviews with people, they would say something, I would think something, and then I would ask a question I didn't even plan on asking because of some information they revealed that I didn't even anticipate. So I, for me, that's part of the exciting process of the whole interview stage and research and um, you know, and the hard part's really the writing <laughs> and transcribing and all that. Transcribing for sure. I mean, uh, that is because yeah. I, I I found the writing, the actual writing, to almost be easier than with than all the research and tracking people down and then interviewing people and transcribing. It just makes you you just lose your will to live. If you've never <laughs> done it, you can't understand how boring. And it's nothing against the people. The interviews can be fascinating, but the nuts and bolts of especially if you're not using transcription software, which I don't use because it always turns out to me to be more trouble than it's worth. Like people swear by some of these. I don't know if you like things like Otter and we're really getting into the weeds here. But like what yeah. I found was they get so many things wrong when you try to do voice to type, you know, automatic transcription that I have to go in and fix and change so much that it's not even worth it for me. Sometimes it changes it so much that I don't even remember or understand what it originally said. Like, I'll just leave it. I'll set it and forget it. <laughs> and then I'll come back and I'll go like, what the hell is this? Like I'm reading the transcription. <laughs> I don't even recognize it. What, you know? And so I do it all the old fashioned way. And I drive myself nuts. Like what I typically found was my equation is it takes for for whatever the length of time the interview is it takes about 3 times that time to transcribe it so i mean do the at least for me so do the math on that and you just go crazy i spent months and months just doing that yeah yeah and that's scary to hear because i i have <laughs> sorry i have transcribed a bunch of interviews i mean uh many many you know but i also did over 300 interviews for this book and some of them are really long. Like I talked to Kevin Nash for like almost five hours. I mean, we talked really late at night and um, he was like, I remember talking to him and he's like, hey man, do you mind if I have some wine? I'm like, have at it. Cause I know like that'll make him more, uh, <laughs> he'll be more honest if he's slightly inebriated. So sure, go for it. Um, but I just let those interviews run. I mean, I also interviewed Mr. Anderson, you know, Ken Kennedy. And yeah. at one point, his wife came to check check on him. And she's like, you okay? Because she was still talking to me. Uh, but I just, I let people go. I mean, if people want to talk to me for an hour, great. If they want to talk to me for longer, cool. Just let it ride because you just never know where these conversations are going to lead. And I think one of the coolest things that have come out of these interviews is that people share documents with me. And I suspect that uh, Guy Evans, who did the Nitro book, that Eric Bischoff, because Bischoff constantly talks about the Nitro book, he must have some sort of financial stake in it. But I think Bischoff provided him with a ton of WCW documents. And I've gotten that for TNA. So I've gotten all sorts of documents from formats to marketing uh, materials to spreadsheets to PowerPoints about TNA's history. Um, really fascinating stuff, even things related to the video game. And I think the fans are really going to enjoy that because 
they're going to be able to kind of see like, oh, this is what they were thinking when it came to this, you know, cross the line campaign or wrestling matters here or whatever, you know, whatever it may be. And I think that I really want people to feel like they're kind of in on a secret. Like as they're reading it, they almost feel like, oh, I shouldn't know this, but I do, you know, because it just makes it a little more thrilling as they're reading the book. And I know I actually realize now I didn't mention the title of the book. What is what is the official full title of the book? Or do you have one set? Uh, well, it's not it's not completely finalized yet, but I'll say this. The name of the book is um, when you hear it, you're going to go, of course. So it is inspired by a, uh, a pay-per-view, I guess we'll say. So I'll leave it up to people to figure that out. But um yeah, yeah, and actually the title and the, the cover are pretty much done. It's really just, I think, once the book's in more of a final state, and I kind of have, and there is a mystery person who is associated with this book who I've not revealed yet. So I think when that information becomes um, you know, publicly available, I'll kind of reveal that all at once. Uh, and there are other folks who I am trying to still interview. So I'm right now, I'm really in the, the, the transcribing and just dividing up into chapter phase. Um, but if obviously a great opportunity to speak with someone comes up, I'm not going to say no. Cause uh, you know, anytime I go to a convention, for example, if there's someone there who I'm like, Oh, I'd really like to get their thoughts for this. I'll just go up to them and ask. And I think that that's the biggest thing. I always tell people this, like with my blog, uh, michaelcavaccini.com, I say, you know, I'm not special anyone can do this. It's really just a matter of not being scared of getting rejected. Like, I can't believe through this process that I've had phone calls with Jeff Carter, uh, Jeff Jarrett, I called him Jeff Carter. Oh my God. <laughs> Jeff Jarrett, Dixie Carter. All of a sudden he's uh, Dixie Carter's wife. Um, Jeff Jarrett, Dixie Carter, you know, Kevin Nash, uh, Gail Kim, you know, Diamond Dallas Page, all these people. If you, if you told me this, like back in 2008, when I was watching TNA, that, hey, you're going to be talking to these people for like three hours, four hours, whatever, and writing a book about it. I went, what? Get out of here. But it all starts with just saying, what the hell? Why not? Because this book didn't exist. No one wrote it. And even if someone does beat me to the punch and write a book about TNA before mine is published, unfortunately there's multiple people i've interviewed who are not dead i mean don west just died and i think i was the last person he ever spoke with about his time in wrestling um i spoke with daphne and jimmy rave and uh, len davies who ran the international tours for tna in the uk and also handled california shows i mean it's unfortunate that so many people have passed away but i i think no one's written a book about this company before and I doubt anyone would go to the lengths I've gone to interview as many people as I've interviewed um, uh, for it. I mean, I, I'm really proud of it. And I want it's going to take years to complete. And the reason why is because I, when it's done, I want people to read it like the Nitro book and go, God damn, this is one of the best things I've ever read. Uh, I don't and not because my writing is like, you know, exceptional. It's really I just wanted to tell a compelling story and have the point of view of the people who are there. It's not my point of view. I'm not trying to convince you of anything. When you read this book, I'm presenting you with multiple sides of stories, and then you draw your own conclusions, because I think that's really important. Yeah, and and I mean, the thing that really gets me is that it sounds like everybody has been really generous with their time. I mean, that's a very fortunate thing to have, where people are just willing to sit and talk for hours and you know 
that's something that might be easier to accomplish with people who are not currently active as much in the business or maybe you know what i mean they have a little more not only time to spare but also a little more of a nostalgic feeling for the past and the things that they did so they enjoy talking at length about it but i mean it's great that that people gave you all that time yeah i'm so grateful for that i mean uh you know like the the it's just incredible and it's funny you mentioned nostalgic i kind of use that to my advantage kevin nash i was working with for a while and i'm like boy i need to get this interview scheduled because wrestlers are the hardest people to schedule with and i knew that kevin nash is a nostalgic person so when the wwe network i don't know if it was on peacock at that time uh had that click documentary pretty much focused on him and sean um i had a feeling that morning that he's gonna watch it get emotional watching it and want to talk about the past so i texted him that morning and i said like hey just watched it really great stuff by the way are you free to talk later tonight and he's like yeah let's talk tonight and i was like aha (laughs) i I knew that would work because i knew that he's you know he's just that kind of a person and because just based on his tweets and, and and things on instagram i could tell that that might that might be the time to 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 convince him to talk to me and it worked um so yeah, certain people are really hard to get um, on the county to reschedule all sorts of things, but I just try to work around them because they're doing me a favor. Uh, and, you know, all these people talk to me for free. I'll, I'll say that too. I mean, there were a few, you know, being wrestlers who tried to get paid for this. And I said, absolutely not. No. I said, because it's really a principle of the thing. Right, I was like, right. if Jeff Hardy is going to talk to me for free, who are you? Right. Like, I mean, I, I'm not trying to diminish their, their, notoriety i mean i interviewed jeff hardy when he was working for wwe he was like a a bona fide legend and star currently working for wwe talking to me when he absolutely shouldn't have and doing it for free i mean so yeah no one's worth paying because if i get some you know um uh, i don't know uh, you know one of the the good brothers for example or vince russo that's not going to sell more books uh, and I could always just quote them from another yeah. interview. Yeah, so I, I mean, that- Russo's not going to look at you without getting paid. So, I, uh, oh yeah, and Russo wanted a thousand dollars to be interviewed. I said a thousand dollars. I said you're out of your mind. And he replies, like, "Don't get hot with me, bro." And I said, "I'm not getting hot." And I said, "It's just you're. That's absurd. You're not getting paid." Well, he did the same thing with the Nine Lives of Vince McMahon, which I can say I was not paid for. So I thought it was uh, interesting when he publicized that on his on his uh, one of his numerous podcasts that he forced them to pay him. So apparently they thought he was worthwhile. But see, I'm glad you mentioned that, because especially when it comes to books, it's a big sticking point with me. And I think it's a problem in the world of wrestling books, which is that there's this lack of understanding of how books are done and how biographies are done and histories and things and you know, it's done from a journalistic perspective, you cannot pay your subjects for interviews, or it really hurts the reputation of the work you're trying to do. Now, it used to be that way even with television, but a long time ago, like I want to say even 30, 40 years ago, that really started to change where people were getting, if it wasn't considered news, quote unquote, people would get paid for interviews. But prior to that, not even those people were paid, like for a big TV interview. When that changed was 
when some of them started realizing the millions and millions of dollars that were being made by the networks for those things and then feeling a little cheated, whether that's fair or not, we all can agree and you and I can agree that is not the case in the world of wrestling books. There's very little money to be made. And in, 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 let's be honest, in books in general these days, unless you're like J.K. Rowling or Stephen King. So people do this, do these books over, because of passion for the material. Eddie Farhat Jr. wanted money that was maybe five times what I was being paid to write the book, which <laughs> which was about that. What I was being paid to write the book was about what I could make in a month and a half as a high school teacher. And you know, I'm not like lining my pockets. I'm doing this to further wrestling history. And yes, I do like to get paid doing it, but not, you know, I'm not rolling in it or anything. And I think because so many wrestling books are autobiographies where people do it to promote themselves or just because wrestling itself is such a hustle and everybody's looking to get paid constantly, there's a lack of understanding as to how these books get even made. And you can't just be paying everybody, not to mention the fact the book will never make a profit if you're paying all these people to be interviewed. Where's the money coming from? So anyway, that's my long-winded uh, kind of soapbox rant to say that it's gratifying that you stood your ground on that on that topic. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And uh, something people also ask about, too, is like, oh, am I, who's publishing it? Now, I, I guarantee... Um, and this isn't a dig at them, but I'm sure ECW Press would publish this or some other publisher who has published other wrestling books. No problem. Because if you say it's got Jeff Hardy, it's got Don Bell's Page, it's got Gail Kim, all these big names, why wouldn't they? Um, especially if, it does, if there's currently no book serving that need. Um, but I don't want that. And the reason why is because I want to have complete creative control over the book. I want to be able to set the price. I want to have it be as long as I want it to be. I want to hire who I want to hire to narrate the book, audiobook. And I also want to make money off of every sale. I don't want to be paid. A lot of things people don't realize too is that with books, uh, and I've interviewed and you know met many authors, a lot of times they give an advance up front. And then if you sell X amount, then you might get a cut of the royalties after it exceeds whatever amount. Right. Now, some books never sell that amount. I mean, even number one best selling authors never exceed whatever that amount is so really all they get is the um you know the upfront money yeah but and, their advances are huge for people right, like that I right mean, they're, they're yeah, massive but with uh, like for example i interviewed an author who is self-published and he makes about four hundred thousand dollars a year off to, off of kindle unlimited just from people borrowing the books and reading them because you're getting paid per page read and i'm like Damn, I said, all right then. I said, I absolutely need to be self-publishing because fans don't care who the publisher is. And also, I, I if you look at books on Amazon, like Reggie, who used to run Nintendo of America, his is published by HarperCollins. If you look at the ebook right now on Amazon, it'll tell you right at the top of the Kindle book, uh, multiple typos have been reported, content errors, right? Um, and so in other words, here's this book published by HarperCollins, who you would assume, oh, this, the quality of this is going to be exceptional. Well, apparently not. So fans don't care who publishes a book, and being published by a traditional publisher does not mean the quality is better. So I think that that's important. Uh, and I think that publishing rights are important. I don't want a book to ever go out of print that I write. And if I'm the one who's publishing it, I can ensure that it doesn't. Now, I will say that with some of these deals, even with with um, third-party publishers, there are 
um, provisions in the contract that after X amount of time or whatever it is, the rights revert to the author. So in and some cases, great. in some yeah. ca- like in my case, that that is the case, unless you know Mike Holmes wants to inform me otherwise. But where um, the author then retains the right, so if at any point down the road you wanted to republish it or do something with it, you could. However, it's true what you said, and it's funny that this is turning into the publishing podcast, but you can no longer these days, and this is coming from somebody who broke in to publishing as a copy editor, which is a fancy word for a proofreader, you can no longer guarantee quality just based on the fact that it's coming out from a so-called legit publisher because the quality control um, I'm sorry to say this is not, and this isn't a direct shot at anyone I've worked with, but in general, as someone in the industry, the quality control is not what it used to be. Um, even wherever you go, like ma- many, many magazines, even mainstream ones, no longer have a dedicated copy editor whose only job is to read everybody else's work. In some cases, online and things, they have writers proofreading their own work, which we were always taught was the ultimate no-no not to do because you will never catch your own mistakes. You will read it in your head the way it is in your head, not the way it is on, on the page. So there's a lot of that going on. Look, I have had in the past in many dealings that I've had with different companies, there have been times, I'm going to say, where I've I've gotten an edited version of something I wrote. And I'll be like, I've been trusting these people. These people are smarter than me and they're better at this than me. And I'm going to leave them to it. And I have a good feeling about this. And then I'll get it back and I'll go, I think that I know more about English grammar and mechanics than the person that is being paid to proofread my work. (laughs) And that's (laughs) a little bit scary uh, because those people should be the ultimate English language grammar nerds. The people that are hired to do that work, I don't know if that's necessarily the case anymore. So I, I do feel your pain on that, and I hope I don't make too many enemies from my comments <laughs> here. But it's so funny you mentioned that R- Russo. You know, in my head I thought, gee, I wonder if he talked to Russo. And then when you started talking about money, I thought, oh, there's no way he talked to Russo. Then <laughs> it, it would have been great, but it's you know, it's too bad. It's too bad that these stories sometimes with. You know, because like I couldn't get Abdullah the Butcher. Good luck with that. You know, for the Sheik book, he would have been great. These stories just get locked away inside the heads of people who will not talk without being paid. And it's such a shame. It is such a short-sighted shame. Yeah, absolutely. And um, there reminds me a couple things. One is that uh, Eric Bischoff. So Bischoff pretty much inspired this whole thing. And what I mean by that is I was listening to his podcast and he mentioned that, you know, back in the day that uh, TNA was getting like 2 million people a week. And today, WWE or AEW would kill for those numbers. And um, I was like, boy, he's right. And then I looked into just, and is there a book about the history of TNA or Impact? And there wasn't. And then I decided to start it. And I started it four days after Bob Ryder passed away. That obviously was just unfortunate luck on my part. But um, and for those listening who aren't aware, Bob Ryder founded TNA with uh, Jerry Jarrett and Jeff Jarrett. Um, so Bischoff, I remember I reached out to him and he said no, that he wouldn't talk to me, even though I interviewed his son, Garrett. And I couldn't understand why. And I would, I was like, like, like to me, Russo and, and Bischoff are like hated people. So I'm like, why wouldn't they want to have their, their, their side of the story out there to try to, you know, uh, balance things out? Well, 
lo and behold, uh, Bischoff just recently came out with his book, Grateful. And so I actually emailed him and I told him, I said, aha, this is why you didn't want to talk to me. And obviously you couldn't tell me that you had a book in the works. Um, and it's good. I mean, his book is good, but I did point out to him, I said, you know, some of the stuff you said, uh, the people at Spike TV and Viacom disagree. Uh, I said, but that's the good part about my book. People can see your side of the story, they can see their side of the story, and then they can decide where, where does the truth lie. Yeah, you know, um, I tried to get him for the Sheik book, believe it or not. The reason being that he grew up in the Detroit area, as you may know, and he... I know he was a wrestling fan before he got into it. So I was making a leap of faith that maybe, you know, given his age and all that, that he might have watched big time wrestling and known about the Sheik and things like that. I got no response. I got nowhere with it. So, you know, like you said, he's a mercurial uh, figure. But but I want to talk a little bit about even the history of, of TNA and Impact, too, because, yeah. God, I mean, people always talk about it's so ironic that they have a pay-per-view called hard to kill because it's like, that's the, that is the rep of the company. It's the company that can never die. And that's not meant to be like, we want it to die, but it's just like, Holy cow. You just look at it and think like, there've been so many times when you thought, Oh my God, this has to be the end. I mean, that you know, they're on like some cable channel that about 12 people have and all this kind of thing. This has got to be it. And and they just keep on going. I mean, they change form. They are not the same company they were 20 years ago, but they keep going. I mean, there are people laughing with everything going on with WWE right now with the board directors and the sale that Impact could outlive WWE. I don't think that's completely out of the realm of possibility. People may think that sounds crazy, but I don't think it is. Yeah, it's absolutely insane. I was just thinking that the other day. I was like, oh my God, like Impact could outlive WWE. That's just shocking. Um, and it's absolutely true. And I think that that's one of the, the most interesting thing about this company's history is I call it the rise, fall, and rise of you know TNA Impact Wrestling because in the beginning, there was a whole lot of drama. And I interviewed a lot of people who um, were part of that drama um with the funding so i interviewed richard scrushy who is the ceo of health south who funded tna he was the original financial backer of the company then the company got in trouble there and dixie and her family had to come in and be the new financial backers and uh, i interviewed people about the pay-per-view scandal that kind of led to that there was this whole situation going on with um you know they thought they were gonna that they sold more pay-per-views than they actually did and so I interviewed people about that, um, lawsuits, all sorts of crazy stuff. Uh, I even, hell, I even interviewed Bob Carter, Dixie Carter's father. And I'm like, how the hell did I get him on the line? Um, so just really fascinating stuff. But so I, I believe that Jeff Jarrett really is what led the company to its rise. So you could say, yeah, Dixie stepped in and kept the company going. But I mean, from a creative standpoint, I think that they were on fire in 2007, 8, and 9 when Jeff was really in control of the wrestling and financially they were doing really, really well at that point. And then, you know, Jeff got sent home and it all spiraled out of control financially, creatively and everything. So that was the fall. And then you had the rise again, which I think is really now in the past few years since Scott Demore and Anthem took over, it was a rocky start in 2017. Cause again, 
you know, you had Jeff was back, but Jeff Jarrett was not in a good place. So there was some, you know, bad things went down. But once um, that was resolved, I think that the companies really uh, regained a passionate fan base. And yeah, they are hard to kill. I mean, it's really just a hell of a story. And for my book specifically, I'm focusing on the first 20 years. So even though this book is not coming out anytime soon, we're going to cap it at 20 years because, you know, 20th anniversary, anniversary, I think is a good time to, to a good ending point. You know, Dixie Carter came back that night um, and uh, it was just kind of a good way to celebrate 20 years of the company's history. And so much happened in those first 20 years that I think it's a lot to explore. Could there be a sequel? Sure. Uh, but I think let's focus on the first 20 years. And there's a, a whole lot of stuff to, to um, dig into there. I think what happened with them, and maybe this was your experience too, just from the information you collected and and my memories of, you know, when I worked with WWE, it was like in the beginning, in the early, and by the beginning, I mean, even like maybe the first, you know, close to a decade of the company, maybe a little less, they were positioned as the number two wrestling company. They were being treated as whether internally or otherwise competitor of wwe maybe a distant second but the closest thing whereas i feel like now especially with aew and everything like they're no longer no one is going to make the case that impact is you know like going head to head with wwe the way you would have maybe 20 years ago or even 15 years ago but it seems like they've now settled into a different role it's almost like they have become what ring of honor used to be which was like it's it's this niche company that serves a certain fan base. It gives them things that they don't get from the other companies. And they're not trying to beat WWE. They're trying to do well with their own market. They're happy with what they're doing. And they actually seem to have found their niche in the business more than before when a lot of people were just saying, oh, they're just trying to be WWE. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the biggest the biggest downfall was that they had a, when Jeff Jarrett was in creative control, 2007, eight, and like the first half of 2009, they had an identity. They had the six sided ring. It was, it spoke to a certain segment of the population as like, yeah, this is my wrestling company. Right. I, I love this. And then Dixie, I guess, just became obsessed with wanting to be Stephanie McMahon, wanting to be WWE. And under the, the guidance of people who used to work for WWE, like Bischoff and Bruce Pritchard and others, decided, well, let's just be WWE light. Let's go head to head. Let's do these things that we really shouldn't do. Uh, it was almost like impulsive decision making without really thinking it through. And she no longer had Jeff Jarrett to kind of be that voice of reason because he was ousted. And it, it's a shame because I really think had they kept going in that direction, had they kept that uniqueness that was, cause it's like, that's what brought them to the dance. That's what got them that fan base. And instead they just like, you know, uh, totally turned their backs on that, that fan base to try and be something else. Uh, Don Dallas page always says this. He says, you can be better than, less than, or different than. And he says, I'd always rather be different than. And he's right. You need to be different. You know, you can't try to be someone else because you you never will be. So you need to just like, 
it's almost like think about yourself as a person. If anyone listening to this tries to be me, they're always going to fail. Just the same way I would fail if I tried to be Brian. Uh, if I just if you just try to be the the best, most fulfilled you know version of yourself, fulfilling your own potential, that's what's going to be the most successful you know version of you. Uh, not you trying to imitate someone else, because then people are going to be like, "Ah, you're not as good as the original." Um, I don't know why they fell into that trap. Uh, and then when you read Bischoff's newest book, he still sings the same old song about, oh, well, had they, you know, had more money to tour and this, like some of the mistakes that he contributed to, which really like led to financial peril for the company, he still defends. And I'm thinking like, are you out of your mind? Some of these decisions were horrendous. They never should have gone in the road full time. They never should have gone head to head on Monday nights. And something Bischoff does not mention in his book is that he said when, how he doesn't mention this in his book, I have no idea. But they went head to head with WWE on Monday nights in March. March. <laughs> of all times. I, I'm like, how the hell did Bischoff not point this out? That is the dumbest thing ever. The timing sucked. When I interviewed the president of Spike TV, Kevin Kay, I said to him, What the hell were you guys thinking doing it in March? That's the one time of the year everyone's watching WWE because of WrestleMania. I said, Why don't you pick like some other time of the year that, you know, you know maybe one of the big four pay per views aren't happening? And he's like, yeah, that's a really good point. Well, considering Bischoff and Hogan are the ones pushing for this thing, shouldn't they know that March is a terrible time to launch something like that? Maybe it was because they just didn't have a stake. It's like the, some of them had, whether they had access to grind or a lot of them were viewing the company as an ATM machine and or they were thinking like, well, what do we care? Let's try this crazy thing. If it doesn't work, who cares? We'll just get the hell out of here. You know, it was that kind of attitude of like, well, this isn't ours, so let's just see what, you know, we'll throw stuff against the wall and see what happens. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the things. I mean, you know, love him or hate him. Vince McMahon always had uh, Kevin Dunn and people like that around him for decades. He didn't have a revolving door of advisors the way Dixie Carter did. They, she would constantly, after Jeff Jarrett was kind of out of that position of head of creative, she just would constantly churn through people, yet John uh, Gaborik, you had Bruce Pritchard, you had Eric Bischoff, you had like, it was like the flavor of the month. And so, and she didn't really understand the wrestling industry. So here's this person who doesn't really understand the industry, trying to rely on other people who have been in the industry for a long time. But like, to your point, are they really invested in the future of this company? Or are they just like, hey, this is a good check. I just need to keep it going and say stuff that I think will appeal to her, whether or not it makes any sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I I saw it even so they started up in two thousand two, and I so I was there. I was at WWE for the first five years of, you know, TNA kind of finding its footing, and like I said, the tapes would get circulated every week. We'd watch them. I remember one time we had one of the tapes on, and Shane Shane McMahon, who was our boss of our department, he came in and he walks by the TV, and you know he had the same response when he saw like a wrestling observer newsletter on somebody's desk right he walks by the tv and tna is on now picture this it's just we're watching tna wrestling and and shane mcmahon is standing there looking at it and he's like so uh what are we getting out of this why are we watching this here this is kind of um i don't know if we should be watching this and i was like we were all kind of like well this is our competition we want to see what they're doing you know what who's there what are they up to and I think the thinking was it was this very condescending thing of like, yes, that's a wonderful idea. 
And there are people who are doing that here, but you're not the people who should be worrying about that. You know what I mean? Like those tapes were being viewed by people like Howard Finkel, who would then report back to things that Vince maybe needed to know that were on there or, you know, Kevin Kelly or um, Tom Pritchard, people that were maybe scouting talent, people like that were watching it. And, and, you know, Shane was right. Like we didn't, we weren't going to like act on any of it, but we just wanted to know what was going on in our industry. But I remember like in the beginning, because Ring of Honor started around the same time too, there was this weird period where it was like WCW went under March, 2001. And there was like a year where it was just like, wow, WWE is the wrestling industry. This is crazy. There, there literally is only one world champion, which of course they screwed up to in wrestling. When's the last time that happened? Like it was this amazing moment in time. And then these new companies started. We didn't know, you know, at the time, were they going to be viable competition or not, especially with TNA in the beginning. I remember even, and this became TNA's rap was that a lot of the talent that WWE released would go there or people that WWE wouldn't rehire. They would go there. People, unfortunately, sometimes that may have had issues with drugs or steroids because TNA was known to have a a weaker kind of testing policy, whether true or not. They would go there. I even remember seeing an influx and an immigration of corporate people because they would say, "Okay, WWE fired me. Well, where could I go? Well, I guess I'll go down to Nashville. I mean, there were people doing that. I remember, like you mentioned, John Gaborik, he did that. Dave Sahadi, who who was you know a t- TV producer, he went there. I knew a guy named Cliff Hall who was. Oh, I a, interviewed Cliff. All right, Cliff is great. Cliff and I, we had our kids in Titan Tots daycare together, but he worked in creative services at WWE, yeah. and time. he wound up when when they cut him because there was like a creative services bloodletting there, and like around two thousand three ish or so, he went there. It just seemed like the place to go. People were uprooting their lives. And going to Nashville, never thinking, well, maybe I could just work in a different entertainment field. Like, it doesn't have to be wrestling. But because people were waiting and seeing, like, this TNA thing looks like it could really be, you know, the next WCW. They even tried to recruit me. I remember, like, Cliff, for example, he emailed me when he was there. And he was like, let me know if you want to come down. I could introduce you to some people and all this kind of stuff. Uh, Because at the time, it really looked like, hey, wow, this is a company on the rise, you know? Yeah, and that reminds me of something I, I wanted to bring up in this call um, or this episode of the, the the show. We talk about people kind of you know, job changes and things like that. Something I wanted to share with the, the listeners here is that so this project, as we were talking about earlier, takes a lot of time because it's I'm a one man band, right? But to help with that, I've actually um, decided to shift my career as a, an individual. So I was working in the corporate world, nine to five, you know, and then in my free time working on this book. Well, a few months back, we had a son uh, who takes up our time, <laughs> a considerable amount of time. And I was just kind of sick of the whole corporate environment, you know, um, having to answer to bosses all the time. I mean, it's almost like you're answering to a, another parent when you're in a corporate environment because you're being micromanaged. Yeah, your allowance is your salary. I mean, it's really like you're just like a grown up kid. It's not. Uh, not for me. Uh, so I decided, uh, uh, you know, I need to shift and do something different. So I actually became a full-time writer and that's what I do now. I, you know, I'm a full-time writer. I write, um, 
uh, all the time. So day in, day out, I write exactly as much as I want to write and no more. And I have no meetings. That was the biggest issue. Sometimes I had seven meetings in a day. Seven uh, meetings. I barely had enough time to run upstairs and take a piss. Uh, and and most of them are just wastes of time. Complete just- waste of time. And also email. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, coming up with, you know, key performance indicators for the year, strategic plans, bonus metrics, you know, manage these 10 people. And the only thing you get out of the salaried position is more work. So, you know, if you're constantly working in a state of fear that you might lose your job. So you get wrung dry. And, you know, at, at the end of it, you're not, all you're getting is more work. So it's really a racket. And I've, I've learned actually that being an independent contractor and being kind of in charge of your, your time and your money um, can actually be a good thing because the sky's the limit. As much as productive as I want to be is as much money as I'll make. So the good part of all of this is that now I have more free time to work on the book. So just earlier today, I was transcribing my interview with Matt Hardy. I worked on that yesterday. Every day, I try to do some transcription because it's it's like saving for retirement. If you just do a little bit here, a little bit there, before you know it, you've accomplished what you've set out to accomplish. And for me, I was just like, yeah, I've been doing this for 15 years. Time for a change. You know, I need to get rid of this stress out of my life and free up my time for my family and for this book. So this book will, thankfully, get completed much faster because I now have more free time to actually work on it. So I think that that should be good news to anyone who's listening. Well, I I went through much the same experience with with Blood and Fire, the Sheik book. And I have to say, in my case, like my my hand was sort of forced. The decision was made for me by, you know, the COVID-19 lockdown and pandemic. It affected my, you know, I guess what you'd call day job, full-time career kind of thing. And I found myself stuck in the house and it was months after. I signed the contract to write Blood and Fire in November of 2019, which is what, like three, four months before the world ended. So, I mean, (laughs) all of a sudden I found myself because I was doing full, I was working full-time for a tutoring agency on site, on location. And it was crazy hours because you can't tutor kids while they're in school, right? So we would get there in the early afternoon, prepare for a couple of hours, do whatever. And then we'd be there till like eight, nine o'clock at night, tutoring these these kids of you know wealthy families and wealthy towns of Connecticut. And um, you know, it was very time consuming. And then I found myself, oh my God, they're they're cutting people's hours because nobody wants to come down to the center. This is back before everything had been figured out in terms of like masking and what's, you know, every, just people didn't want to be around other people, you know, and yeah. and the, the whole Zoom thing hadn't been worked out yet. And so everyone's hours were being cut. And I said, well, I'm going to take advantage of this and I'm going to put myself full bore into this book. And it became, it became my full-time job, eight hours a day, sitting in front of the laptop or doing whatever related to the book. And it never would have got done as quickly as it did. It never would have been as thorough as it did. Like people like to point out the amount of research and detail in the book, which I find very flattering. I would have never been able to include all that if I had to squeeze it in around whatever else I was doing. And so that period, it helped me to change gears. Like in the last three years, I've changed gears to where what used to be my on the side freelance kind of thing. Yeah. has has become my career and ironically the tutoring which I still do is now the side thing that I do for something a little extra you know 
And so I've become much more high profile in terms of wrestling media and just online wrestling community. And than I have ever had been maybe since I worked for WWE many years ago. And that is all thanks to consciously shifting my career path and focusing less on the kind of things you were dealing with and more on the things that I want to do, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And part of this is I, before COVID, like you said, before the world came to an end, I um, I was teaching uh, as a professor and uh, just a communications class because that's what I studied. I got my bachelor's and master's in communications. And now that my time is free, I'm going to teach in, during the day in the fall at a local university here in Philadelphia. So I'm very excited about that opportunity. And there's other universities who are expressed interest as well. So I might wind up teaching at more than one university during the day. Um, so it's really just teaching and writing. And um, and part of that writing is this book. So I'm, I'm really happy about that because I, I, you know, I feel like to be happy in life, you need balance each day. So like if I can, there's certain things I love. So it's like if I can play a little bit of a video game, read a little bit of a book, do some writing, listen to music. Like if I can kind of have like just these little slivers throughout the day of things that I enjoy that make me happy, obviously time with family and my son and stuff, then I feel like it was a, a good day. You know, if, if the whole day was spent only doing one activity, then I feel like, oh man, I'm exhausted. I'm just you know, drained. I wanted right. to feel like energized by the day. Uh, like even just doing this interview with you is a fun part of my day. I was very much looking forward to it. And um, yeah, you just kind of need to figure out like what is it that brings you joy in life? How do you get more of that? And what is it that kind of repulses or repels you in life? And how can you make sure you don't do any of that or the least amount of it? Uh, right. And yeah, everybody's got that own um, journey that they have to go through to figure that out. And it sounds like you went through it yourself. And so have I, and I have been laid off in the past from jobs. So I know that that's like as well. And um, it's actually not as bad as it seems. You, you know, you, uh, we wound up spending less money and saving more when I was laid off. So, you know, um, you never know how things are going to work out. You know, you just kind of have to welcome change. And, yeah. Uh, I, you. I got kind of batted around in the corporate world myself. And what happens after a while is, in the beginning in the beginning it's terrifying and then you realize i'm going to be fine and, and once you realize that that you're not going to be living out on the street you're going to survive this you've been through it more than once more than twice <laughs> once you realize hey we get to the other side of this thing and you figure it out and you do something there's a lot of strength to be gained there a lot of um uh motivation because you're not constantly living with a cloud over your head and you you basically um you've been through the fire and you know you can get through it again if need be and i i'm more productive always have been even going back to my school days when i'm happy when i'm interested and engaged i always struggled with you know my grades and my classes it was night and day between the subjects i loved and the subjects i hated like the grades were so far apart it was like a and c or d and so far apart that you know it wound up dragging my whole average down i would take the sat and get like off the charts on the reading and and the verbal stuff you know almost perfect and then the math would kill me and and just make my grades very average my overall grades i've just because i could not apply myself my brain just does not work that way i'm not one of those people 
that can apply themselves to things they hate. I'm sorry to say that, or to subjects they find boring and things. I just suck at doing that. And so now <laughs> I focus on the subject that I love more than any other subject. And I'm I'm succeeding doing that. Professional wrestling. Hooray. Absolutely. And that's the thing I think people should learn. And I learned this recently is that we all have strengths and weaknesses. You shouldn't waste too much time trying to make your weaknesses strengths because it's just not going to happen. Instead, you should lean into your strengths and just become like exceptional at those strengths. So if you're really good at writing, do it more of it. If you're really good at teaching, do more of that too. And then, so you're really just highlighting and enhancing those strengths. And to your point, it's going to make you happier too. So the benefit is that you're going to enjoy what you're doing and that's just going to feed, you know, your ability to do it. So, I mean, life, the point of life, I think, is to be happy because if you're happy, you're going to make those around you happy. And I mean, not to get personal, but I can see from, you know, what you share of, you know, of your family on social media that you obviously have a great family, a great support system. And, I think that that also helps too. We're lucky to have great partners in life um, who help support us so we can do what we want. Um, and I think that's just fantastic. And I wish everyone else just as much happiness. And it might take you a while to get there. Like I said, it took me 15 years to get where I am now, but I wouldn't change any of those 15 years because all of those steps led to me sitting here talking to you and writing a book about TNA. So. Yeah, everything uh, leads to something else. And um, you can only hope that that something else is even greater than what came before. it. And and like when you love what you're doing, you, you even do a better job. You know, I'm thinking about, again, the Sheik book. Everybody loved the detail on it and like going down all these rabbit holes and finding these things out. That was also because I was fascinated myself in what I was doing and writing about. If it was, you know, just a grind or something I wasn't engaged in. It wouldn't have been the same experience. Like with Sheik, I genuinely would dive into these rabbit holes that I would sometimes get lost in just because I was interested to learn. There would be times I would just forget about the book and I'm going, I'm on Ancestry.com and I'm tracing <laughs> I'm tracing family trees in Syria and seeing, oh my God, it's the Sheik's great great grandfather and all this kind of crazy stuff and i have to sort of sometimes go okay whoa 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 rein it in how usable is this i don't know do people need to know what his family was doing in the 18th century i don't know so things like that but i mean again it results in very thorough detail i mean if you read that book it was like i broke down what he was doing professionally in wrestling almost on a week to week basis of his entire career you will you would know like where he was who he was wrestling for you know what territory was he in what was he doing just because again it was a byproduct of how interested i was in the subject um it just made it made for a better product yeah and i have to say about your book obviously you know we're friends and i support everything you do and i remember i pre-ordered your book for that reason. I mean, I knew nothing about the Sheik. I was like, I was aware of him, but I wasn't really, I knew nothing about it. But I was like, well, heck, Brian wrote it. I'm sure it's great. And then I read it and I was like, this is really good. So I think the fact that your book is probably, I mean, because knowing that I didn't know who he was, you know, in great detail means a lot of the readers probably were in the same boat. And the fact that you have gotten so many great reviews and lots of positive feedback, even from people who 
have never seen a match, uh, I think speaks volumes. And I, I hope to strike that same type of feedback as well, because yes, this book is for people who grew up watching TNA and Impact or were, watch it currently. Uh, it's also for those who maybe dropped off and you know haven't watched it in years. And it's for people who've never watched it and maybe just want to learn about um, you know the company's history because there were so many people involved in that history who we know today that I think it's interesting. But my book too, and I, you know, I'm not sure how you approach this for yourself, but I think the business side of the business is actually more interesting than the creative side. So okay. for my book, it's really about the business side of TNA. You're not going to get like, I mean, yeah, you're going to get thoughts from wrestlers about this, you know, winning the title and this and that and the, you know, from the Hardy Boys, you'll hear about the broken universe and, you know, final deletion and all that great stuff. But it's not really about like week to week creative. It's really about um, what went on behind the scenes to bring that creative to life and all the drama uh, surrounding it. Because to me, that's interesting. Like if you want to hear about Daphne's workers comp lawsuit, uh, workers complain you're going to hear about it if you want to hear about the funding issues in the beginning of the company's history you're going to hear about it if you want to hear about you know just the dixie and jeff drama including karen angle and kurt angle and all that you're going to hear about it to me that's what the truth is actually way more compelling than the fiction and i think that i really want to bring people behind the curtain so they can go oh damn all that was happening in the background, I didn't know that. So I, I want them to have an appreciation for that, as well as you know what happened in the ring, and for the people who, um, who did everything from the lighting to setting up the ring to booking tours, like all of the people behind the scenes who who brought it to life, who a lot of people just don't know, uh, and I want to make sure they get credit to. And that that's great because at this point now we're talking. 21 years where you've got a whole generation of fans that that grew up with TNA and Impact and and even if they didn't even if you're not the person who's sort of like Impact is you watch it every week and it was your favorite company and TNA and all this stuff still it's just to get a complete picture of the wrestling business the landscape of the business especially in those earlier years when everything was still starting up and 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 you know, it was a company that was finding its way. It's just a fascinating subject for people that want to get that complete picture of wrestling in the early years of the 21st century, you know, of just the business. It's the business side of it, you know? Yeah. It's just, I find that to be really interesting. And, uh, and being a marketing communications type person, like I mentioned earlier, I did get a lot of branding documents from ad agencies about the rebranding. I mean, one of the most fascinating documents I got was when they were rebranding from TNA to Impact Wrestling, which they kind of half did. Um, they didn't really commit to that completely because the company is still TNA, but the show became Impact. Um, I have a bunch of names in a marketing document. They considered renaming the company other than Impact Wrestling. And some of these names are horrendous. So <laughs> I intend on including all of those names in the, the book, um, as well as, you know, why did they pick the blue color? What did that mean? And um, how did they come up with the Wrestling Matters uh, tagline? And what was the inspiration for Cross the Line? And um, and I even got to interview the uh, 
one of the voices of TNA. So we know that um, uh, the famous voice of TNA, the uh, uh, Barry Scott passed away, you know, who would always be like, TNA, cross the line. I did not get to interview him because he passed away before I had the opportunity to do so. But I did get to interview Mike McCall. And Mike would do the, um, he was the other voice of TNA who would just be like, this week on Impact Wrestling, you know, that guy. And it was so cool talking to him and just like learning about how he did what he did. And he shared audio files with me of those recordings. And and this guy's done like NBA. I think he's done NFL. Like he's like a big deal. And so, I, I mean, I really dug in there into like every aspect. I even interviewed Doug Oliver, who's basically the Jim Johnson of TNA. He did all the music for Jeff Hardy and all the wrestlers and everything. You mentioned Cliff Hall. Cliff, I interviewed him. And Cliff did all of the amazing posters and DVD artwork and things for TNA. He did the Hulk Hogan Obama uh, uh, shirt <laughs> that uh, you know says like change. So if you remember that, that was Cliff. Um, I so know there's that. just there's just so many great stories to be had um, that I think people are going to just go wow. And also you mentioned David Zahadi. David's fantastic, and I, I interviewed him and others. And I said, hey, like I. I knew you guys didn't sell too many tickets because that was something they struggled with as live attendance. I said, but on TV, you made it look incredible. How'd you do that? That's going to be part of the book. You know, how do you have, you know, low attendance yet make it feel and sound big on TV? AEW is kind of going through a bit of that right now. I was going to say, yeah. I mean, that's, I don't, in fact, I'm going to venture to say, I don't think they're doing as good of a job as impact was doing at, at, at what you're describing. It, it, they're not doing the greatest job of hiding it these days, unfortunately. Yeah, and I I, I got to interview folks who work for AEW. One of them was uh, Keith Mitchell. Keith recently retired, but yeah. Keith is the head of production for TNA and WCW and WCCW back in the day, and he'd never done an interview with anyone, so I was the only person he ever did an interview with. Then he retired, and... Um, he brought me backstage to AEW to see what they do. And David Zahadi brought me backstage at Impact to see what he does. So I got to see how these two guys who worked for the company did production in, in uh, a unique way. And for me, Zahadi, one of the greatest things he ever contributed was um, the camera. So he would use what they call the jib cam. So that's the camera that's attached to the crane that flies over the ring. If you all remember that amazing moonsault that Kurt Angle did off the top of the cage onto Mr. Anderson, um, that was David Zahadi. And so there's all sorts of stories about, you know, just how that production and that visual style, everything from the fireworks to the lighting to the camera, how it creates that unique identity I was talking about earlier, because you want it to kind of have a certain attitude where people watch it and they know even before they see the logo, I'm watching TNA or I'm watching WWE or whatever it is. Like if you see an ad on the side of a bus and it doesn't say the logo, but the coloring is a certain way, the humor is a certain way. You can actually figure out if it's a good brand, what the brand is. You can say, Oh, that's Coca-Cola. I just know it's Coke, you know, because of the polar bears and that little bottle they're holding. And I guarantee it's a Coke label and boom, it's Coke. Right. So if you have strong branding, it really resonates. And so we're going to explore that in the book. I think that that's an important aspect of the history of the company. Two quick things I thought of when you were saying that, and then I'll 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 um, ask you to just let people know how they could keep track of 
the the book and and where to get it and eventually and that kind of thing. But yeah. Dave Dave Sahadi, as far as I remembered, when he was with WWF before he went to TNA, he was actually more known. The thing he was known for were were the packages, like the yeah. producing. You know, like he did those famous legends promos where they had Ernie Ladd and Gorilla Monsoon and Pat Patterson and and those guys, and they took them down to like the Hamburg wherever they shot like TV in the seventies uh, at the field house in Hamburg or Allentown. And, 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 and the story was that it made Vince cry when he showed it to him. And Vince was, yeah. was like angry at him for making him cry. It was, it was that effective, but like, that's more what he was known for. I remember rather than the live production, but with, with Keith too, Keith Mitchell, I mean, God, you talk about innovative and in, in going back to world-class. He was the guy again as far as i know too that innovated you know world class was the they were known for their tv production in a time when territorial tv wrestling was still kind of crude i think i think world class was the first company that had the cameramen go into the ring and shoot like the wrestlers during introductions inside the ring so i mean some of these were innovative people that they were bringing in from a production point of view Absolutely. And that's one of the things we discussed, me and David, was how he had to go from being the package guy to being the basically the, the director and running the camera live and uh, how Keith trained him to do that and um, just that whole experience. And as you were talking, it also reminded me of Jason Hervey. So we all know that Bischoff and Hervey worked together um, in TNA and they worked together outside of TNA. I got to interview him. I couldn't believe it. I reached out to him. He said yes. And we spoke and we talked about how TNA used to do those things like TNA reaction where they brought like the shaky camera backstage and they would do kind of the over the like almost like the camera was like peeking in on something that was happening. I mean, that was something that Hervey and Bischoff brought to the table and also getting the live reactions from the talent after a match, like that was something that they, you know, created to add a unique feel. So, um, you know, we got to talk about that. And something people don't know is that Jason Hervey worked for Health HealthSouth um, back in the day. So him and Richard Scrooge, the original financial backer of TNA, are friends and they used to work with one another. So talk about like, what a small world. So I talked to him about working at Health HealthSouth. And then I talked to him later on about working at TNA, the company that's Health South funded. So it was just really fascinating stuff. And we talked, of course, about aces and eights and all these things. So there's a lot of really interesting stuff to explore and dig in there. Um, and on the production side, I uh, interviewed Jeff Bornstein, who does the lighting for AEW now. He did the lighting for TNA. I interviewed a fireworks guy, um, the guy who actually did the whole opening for Monday Night Show, which I loved as a kid with like the buildings exploding and the street with fire. He did that. And then he did fireworks for TNA. And I was like, oh, we got to talk. And when he told me about the WCW thing, I said, oh my God, that was you. I loved that. That was so cool to yeah. watch as a kid. Um, so we talked about these things. I mean, every aspect of the company you could think. Of. I even talked to the seamstress who created the outfits for Jeff Jarrett and all this talent. Um, and the thing is, is that those people, who are behind the scenes, they're observing things around them. So you're going to get stories from them about, you know, how is talent, talent treated by the higher ups or what was it like working with this person or that person? So those people not only have a perspective on what they did, but also what was happening around them. And it's, um, I, I almost want you to be able to transport into all these people's 
minds and see what they saw, you know, through this book and um, just kind of shifting point of view, if you will. One thing I'll point out too is like your book, I am going to tell a story that kind of stitches it all together. I don't like books that are just a bunch of block quotes. Some right. books are like that, where it's just literally quote, 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 quote. It's easy. It's, That's why they're like that. But I find, I find that it, it keeps you at an arm's distance, and you can never really fully immerse yourself in the story because there is no story. It's just a bunch of text. I actually don't want to read books like that. So for the, for the people you know, tuning in here, it's going to read like the Sheik book. It's going to read like Nitro. It's, it's going to, there's a narrative because if there isn't, then it won't feel cohesive. And then I'll, yeah, I'll have failed at my job, and I don't want that to be the case. Well, it's a fascinating story. Like I said, it's something a lot of people are going to be interested in. What is the best way? Because I know you said it's still probably years away, and it's an ongoing work in progress. What's the best way for people that are at least interested, and they want to keep track of it, and, and they don't want to forget? You know, like how can they keep up with you and what you're doing? Like, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, the absolute best way to follow me is through my website. Um, so it's michaelcavaccini.com. So that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L and Cavaccini. So it's C as in Charles, A as in Albert, V as in Victor, A as in Albert, C as in Charles, I, N as in Nicholas, I.com. So go to michaelcavaccini.com, sign up for email alerts. So that way, as I'm posting things, you're getting it straight to your inbox. Because I know we all rely on social media a lot, but hey, with the way Twitter's looking nowadays, who knows if Twitter will be around by the time the book comes out. So I don't want to say follow me there, but you could. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's at mcavaccini. But my website, uh, I'm in control of, and that will not be going anywhere. So follow me there. I have a page dedicated to the book. And um, yeah, I, I intend on continuing to provide updates on how things are going so people can know when to expect it. I just saw an author... Uh, talk about a book that took her 14 years to write and it just came out. And I was like, damn, I promise you, this will not take 14 years to complete because by then it'll be like the 40th anniversary of TNA. And that's not going to take that long. I want this to be done within the next, you know, five years or less, uh, preferably less. But, you know, I'm not, it's not arbitrary. I'm not just going to push it out there if it's not where it needs to be. The quality needs to be there. And once it is, uh, you know, I... I think people are going to love it. And I really, and I also want Jeff Jarrett, Dixie Carter, and anyone who reads it to go, you know, I might not agree with what the talent said about me in here or the people who work for the company, but damn, this is a good book. This is, you know, well-researched, well-written. You know, that's really what matters is having that respect of the people who are reading it. They might not agree with everything that's been, that, that was said, but if they respect the quality uh, and attention to detail, that's all we can hope for. And I will post the links when when this interview gets posted, when this episode goes up, I'll put the links to the website. I, I appreciate you spelling your name out. I'm very jealous being half Italian that you get to actually have the Italian last name. You know, I tell people I'm Italian and they go, well, your name is Brian Solomon. And I'm like, I know story of my life. But so I'm, I'm jealous of the name there. But thanks for spelling it out. I will. I'll share it out when the episode gets posted. And Mike, I can't thank you enough for coming here. And I know what it's like to have a project like this. You know what? That you're just dying for the world to see and everything and the fans to see. So I, I thank you for coming on and, and talking about it so in depth. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Like I said, I'm a big fan of your work and respect what you do. 
uh, and I appreciate you being part of this book. I mean, and that's something that uh, I know Brian mentioned earlier, but you're going to get uh, Brian's insights in the book as well. So uh, it's going to be very exciting stuff. So um, yeah, thank you again. I appreciate it. And I look forward to connecting with all of you uh, online. There you have it, folks, my conversation with Michael Cappuccini. And I hope that if you have an interest in TNA wrestling and its history, that you found that to be interesting. And I hope that even if you did not necessarily consider yourself to be a big fan or supporter of TNA or Impact Wrestling, that you still found something of interest there, as I said, in talking about the history of professional wrestling at the turn of this century. I think there's a lot to be learned there, and I wish Mike the best of success in his upcoming book, and I'll keep everyone posted as it gets closer to that book coming out. Now, looking ahead, I want to give you a a notice of something very special for next week. So as I mentioned, I've been talking to people for the Gorilla Monsoon book, one of whom was Ken Patera, because if you are going to write a book about Gorilla Monsoon, you have to talk to the man who retired Gorilla Monsoon. It was the match in the Philadelphia Spectrum in the summer of 1980 where Gorilla lost to Ken and the stipulation was to retire, and so Gorilla did, as he reminded people very often in later years, he retired for good. So anyway, I'm interviewing Ken, and the conversation is such gold, <laughs> and if you've ever heard interviews with Ken Patera, you know what I mean, but it's, it's going so well and so entertaining that I just kind of decided, and of course I got his permission, naturally, but I decided, hey, this is more than just an interview for a book that's going to sit in a can somewhere on a hard drive on my computer. This needs to be broadcast to the world. And that is why my conversation with the Olympic strongman, the world's strongest man, Ken friggin' Patera, is going to be episode 61 of Shut Up and Wrestle next week. So stay tuned. You will not be disappointed by this. In addition to Ken, in future weeks, I'm going to have other great guests coming up on Shut Up and Wrestle. We've got Mike Clark, who worked in Frank Tunney's Toronto wrestling office. We have Phil Schneider of the Ringer.com and the Way of the Blade podcast and book. I've got Mary Freeze, the daughter of the great Pompero Furpo on the way, as well as longtime Pro Wrestling Illustrated and London publishing contributor Bob Smith. Many fine guests lined up if you keep on listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. And you can do that by going to our website, suawpod.com, or you can go to Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Podcast Addict, wherever you find podcasts, you will find Shut Up and Wrestle. And while you're at it, join the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon, where there's links, audio, video, discussions, and all kinds of other fun stuff going on. So please do check it out. There's my book, Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original chic, which you can purchase in print, digital, and audio format on Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com or physical bookstores, wherever you get books. If they don't have it, ask them to order it. Blood and Fire, check it out. The Wrestling News, your daily morning update on what is happening in the world of professional wrestling put together by the Arcadian Vanguard team, including yours truly. If you haven't been listening, please do find it. It's also on YouTube as well. 
You can get it at thewrestlingnews.com. It will be well worth your time. Five to ten minutes every morning. Learn about what's going on in the world of professional wrestling. You can also read my articles in a couple of very cool wrestling magazines, one being Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which you can buy in digital or print form at pwi-online.com. And there's also Inside the Ropes magazine, which you can get at insidetheropesmagazine.com. In addition to contributing to Pro Wrestling Illustrated magazine, I'm also the co-host with Al Castle of the PWI podcast, which you can also find wherever you find all your favorite podcasts. It will be there. Trust me. If you're looking for me on social media, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. You can also find my author page on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website out on the World Wide Web. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that you're never fully dressed without a smile. So long, wrestling fans. 